Okay. So I've got to ask if anyone here has any examples or thoughts, or if they can think, if you can think of something that is really repetitive that you encounter daily or regularly, something that just kind of repeats over and over that drives you nuts. <laughs> Brushing your teeth. Oh, okay. Real like ads on the radio. Okay, here's one I was thinking of. Does anyone here know about gold label tuna or gold sealed tuna? You listen to The Peak 1027 for any time in the last 10 years? It's like the most prolific ad campaign I ever heard that was like for canned fish. And like, do you have any idea how much radio advertising costs? And it's like, this is supposed to be this hip, like younger radio station and it's like canned fish. So maybe it's, I guess nobody listens to the radio anymore either. It's just me, because I drive old cars. Okay, what about, I, I heard if you travel a lot for work, the safety talk on airplanes can be pretty repetitive and a little annoying and tiresome if you hear it all the time, regularly. Maybe it's the, the host script that we kind of have each morning here at church, and you're like, I've heard this all. It's over and over again, right? I get it. This, the, the secret is it's not actually for you if you know all the stuff. It's for the person who's never heard it before. It's to bring them into it and welcome you here. But anyways, or maybe if you're younger still, or you just remember way back, and maybe you're just, you got memories of uh, your mom asking if you want a coat on your way out the door, right? Always, even if you don't need it. Even if it's apparently October and 30 degrees outside. You don't need coats anymore. <laughs> well, so here's the thing, repetition. We are in a study on the book of Galatians. It's a book in the New Testament of the Bible. It's actually a letter written by a man named Paul. He wrote a letter to uh, Christians, followers of Jesus in ancient Galatia, which is like modern day Turkey, uh, kind of area just for the context, Eastern Mediterranean area. And what it was is Paul was a man who traveled all around uh, telling people about the good news of Jesus, telling people about who Jesus was, how he's changed everything about the world and religion and his life as well, his own experiences. And, and he converted thousands and thousands of people who in turn converted thousands and thousands more of Christians. They set up these churches. And then what he would do is he'd check in later on and he would write these letters to them, uh, usually you know, encouraging them, challenging them, equipping them, and, and sometimes or often actually kind of calling out stuff that started to become kind of bad habits or bad teachings or bad practices or going way off the rails. And, and so that's what this is. The study of this book of Galatians is Paul writing a letter to believers in Galatia and to us as well. We believe that this is stuff that we need to hear and listen to. And it's, it's really repetitive, right? Like we have this overall theme called Jesus plus nothing because over and over again, and we've done a couple dozen studies now already breaking through this, uh, we're just going through verse by verse, bringing this into our life, seeing how this can talk. And, and the Apostle Paul, the author of this book, is saying stuff constantly like, don't go back to the old ways. Don't, don't go back to the other false gods. Don't do the things from your old habits, right? Jesus is now the new faith, your new thing to put your faith in, right? So it's kind of repetitive. But I think it's because there's something hugely important Paul's trying to get across. If you're just joining us now, that's awesome. So glad you're here. Uh, you haven't missed out, well, you've missed out on a bunch, but it's the same kind of theme going on. Uh, really happy you're here. Maybe you're getting bored of this, but you know, I, a perfect example I always think of when I think of like, oh, I'm repeating something here. I knew I had a friend who was a pastor who had this kind of basic three-line truth that he added into his sermon for a year and a half straight, every single Sunday, sometimes multiple times in a Sunday. And people would sometimes come up to him and be like, you say that a lot, right? 
And for whatever this practice in life was, then he'd say, okay, when's the last time you had the opportunity to try this? Oh, I can't really think of it. Well, that's why I'm telling you again, because you need it. You need to hear this. So let's, let's hop into it. We are in Galatians chapter four, starting at verse nine. We're gonna kind of pick up a little bit where we talked about last week. We're gonna kind of go right back into it. But Galatians chapter four, verse nine, and uh, going on to verse 11. So what that reads is, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? It also says elemental forces or false gods or idols. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Talking to a culture that has deep roots of being oppressed and enslaved by an entire nation for generations. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Paul is heated. This is serious to him. And you think we're over halfway through this letter to the Galatians and he's still saying stuff like, come on, I fear I've wasted my efforts on you pretty big deal. Something massive is going on. And it's written to us as well. I'm not saying it. I, I don't fear I've wasted my efforts on you yet. I love you guys. You're great. Paul is saying to us, though, is saying to read that if we are going back to whatever this, this old things, these old ways or whatever, he's wasted his efforts on us. And now here's the thing. My fear, though, for sure is that we sometimes read this, we're in 2022, we're reading the Bible here, and we're like, yeah, old days, old cultures, they went from one faith to another, and this superstition in the next, and it's religions and practices and rituals, and we just think it's disconnected, right? Like, we're Christians, we're fine, we're followers of Jesus or whatever, we're, we fully understand everything. But here's the thing, here's the problem. The original audience, they were followers of Jesus. They were professing. They thought they had it right. They had it figured out. They thought they were the progressive, understood the culture around them. They were woke. And Paul's saying, man, you're so far off. You keep turning back to these old things. And they thought they had it. We think we have it sometimes. We think we're doing fine. And then we need to hear these messages of saying, don't turn back. Don't be enslaved. All these things that we think in our head and we have the you know, cross-stitched panel thing in our bathroom mirror that says, you're doing fine, the good shepherd loves you. We think there's nothing to check in on. Just because we're not part of a context of first century Judaism with religions and temples and you go into this place or that place or whatever, we fall regularly into the same practices and the same habits. We get enslaved by what Paul here is calling elemental forces of the world, the powers of the world, things that Paul says are not God's, but we treat like gods. They have power over our lives. So here's what we need to do this morning. And it's really exciting. It's a good one. Paul spent the majority of the letter talking to the Galatians, talking to us, trying to get us stoked and passionate about the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, this thing of Jesus plus nothing again. What we're going to do this morning is actually sidestep away from Galatians for a moment, and we're going to head into the gospel of John. We're going to head to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, around verse 6, and uh, what we're going to do is dive into this. is one of the most famous miracles. I've, I've seen it, uh, you know, kind of parodied in cartoons. Family Guy and Simpsons did it, right? So, like, the majority of the world must know about this whole thing. Jesus turns water into wine. Amazing miracle. Amazing. Changed everything. And so, to bring you into the context of this moment, so we're in John, chapter 2, what, what it is, so this is right at the start of Jesus' ministry, uh, him entering into the faith world. And, and what's happening here is he, he's been baptized. He has fulfilled a bunch of the prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh, he battled with the devil in the wilderness, fulfilled a bunch more prophecies from the Old Testament. Uh, and now he's at a party. 
a wedding, actually, with his family, with some friends, this huge wedding. And it's like, like a big event in the culture. You know, it was like week-long celebration. And then tragedy strikes. They ran out of wine. So what do they do? Jesus' mom is like, well, my son's the Messiah, son of God, right? So he could probably help us out. So he goes to Jesus, and, or uh, Mary goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, we're out of wine. Can you help me out? And I wonder sometimes how many times that happened, right? Where mom, Jesus' mom is like, okay, Jesus, like, you got to be able to help us out here, right? Like, can you, you know, the wagon's broken or whatever. Let's go. It doesn't record that in the Bible, but it says there's a lot of other signs and miracles and things that Jesus performed but what do they do? So Jesus' mom, Jesus, can you help us out? Jesus, there's a whole bunch that we can dive in there, this interaction, but that's not the focus of this. Where we're going to jump into is John chapter 2, verse 6. So read along with me. It'll be on the screen, or if you've got your Bibles with you, dive into that. It's even better. Uh, John 2, 6. Nearby stood six stone jars, water jars, water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. Amazing story. We're going to dive into this. We're going to pick it apart. It's, it's awesome. The first thing, I just want to talk a little bit about the nature of a miracle, this thing that happened here. So if this is your first time reading it, your first time kind of encountering a Jesus thing, you're hearing about Jesus, turn water into wine, okay, magic, neat stuff. Here's the thing, the miracles, the things that Jesus performed are not meant to be magic like a David Blaine, whatever, cards in your pocket and the sealed envelope that comes out of your ear. It's not meant to show off something. It's meant to actually take nature, take stuff we understand, adjust the way it operates completely and reveal something amazing that is God in action in our lives. Uh, the Bible refers to them as signs. They accomplish something so much bigger than just showing power, showing mystery. It's not this mystic thing. Uh, C.S. Lewis has, uh, I love it actually, has this kind of dialogue about miracles and he says it's not, you know, this, it's not just this complete breaking of all natural laws we think, uh, it's a different understanding that if we have a worldview that there's a creator of the universe, he sees the world and all, all the strings and all the bits and the atoms and the quarks and stuff differently than we could ever fathom. And in fact, when we might think, you know, if you catch an apple falling from a tree, does that break the law of gravity? or interrupt it? How does that work? So C.S. Lewis instead says this uh, about the way miracles kind of work and about this miracle specifically. Then, if it was God who taught a grape seed to form roots into the soil and draw water up along a stem, and with the aid of water into the fruit create a juice, that which then ferments, thus every year from Noah's time to ours, God has turned water into wine. And here we just see it differently. It's amazing. Or the way one poet, Richard Crashaw, said, the water saw its master and blushed. It's beautiful. I actually thought that was going to be like a heartwarming thing. That's kind of funny too, I guess. Sure, that's fine. That's the miracle that's going on here, right? And now we're going to study it to see the impact this has because this one moment, the way the Gospel of John, and I'd love to do the study, we actually did that last year going through it. The Gospel of John wasn't 
as chronological as it was trying to convey this big message of who God was, who Jesus was, and how he changed everything we know about faith and the world and the creator Yahweh. Um, but he, he doesn't waste words. He has a purpose for every single thing. So let's dive into this. The first piece is the six stone water jars. And what I love about this is the author, John, in this, um, he wrote the Gospel of John a fair bit later than the other Gospels and was writing it to people who wouldn't have been right around the original context. So what's beautiful is he kind of breaks the fourth wall and gives us a narrative every now and then. Tell us right there, what, what were they there for? What were these water jars there for? They were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. It's great, you don't even need a commentary. You just read the book, it tells you what's going on. What these were was jars that were essentially the epitome of the Judaistic kind of ritualistic practice of washing, of purifying, of cleaning. It was this faith uh, culture that kind of permeated every single thing around the ancient Middle East, Eastern Mediterranean area of purity, of being clean. You would touch the wrong thing, you gotta wash your hands. You would be around the wrong person, wash your hands. Think the wrong thing, gotta wash. Be in the wrong place for the wrong time or whatever, the wrong day of the week or whatever, you gotta wash. And actually, I had the funny thought of, I was gonna say, you know, not like COVID hand washing, but actually, I think because of the pandemic we had for a while, we actually can relate a little bit more. Who here developed a bit of a, a weird sense about when your hands have touched stuff and you haven't been to a sanitizing station yet for a while, right? Like, I've never been a germaphobe, but 2020, 2021, I suddenly had this much more innate sense of like, man, I've touched like 12 and a half doorknobs and two handrails, and I need to find a PRL station like tomorrow or yesterday. You suddenly have this awareness. That was, and more than just your hands, the culture had this sense in their minds. They knew they were unclean, and you had to purify. You had to wash, and it was this repeated cycle. This was representing the epitome of what the religious practice was of the day. And six vessels. Here's the thing is in that culture, numbers make, they play a very important role. And six is representative of anybody reading this, the first century Jews, any of the original audience reading this would have known, been like our number 13. You know that you don't just throw the number 13 around. It means something unlucky is going to happen or it's whatever, right? Six is imperfect. It is just short of perfection. It is incomplete because seven is the number of perfection, of wholeness, of completeness. So six is just short of that. So this is showing the perfect. Well, actually, here's a quote from a New Testament scholar, William Barclay. That's perfect. The water pots stand for all the imperfections of the Jewish law. They came up just short, and Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the law, of that religion, and to put in their place the new wine of the gospel of grace. Jesus turns the imperfection of religion into the perfection of grace. This is the central point of the gospel of Jesus, what he came in to change everything into their lives, into our lives. And this is the thing that the apostle Paul is getting on the Galatians and on us of saying, you need to remember this and you need to stop focusing on all the other things. So here's the thing. Who here is a little bit like, okay, that's fine, but... I'm not like religious, or maybe you're kind of fresh coming into the church kind of culture thing, or maybe you're here and you don't really want to be here, you're kind of a skeptic, whatever, you're not religious, you're just in a church building for Sunday morning, whatever, that's fine. Or maybe you are, but it's not like religion, like you're reading in the Bible, it's not because of all the stuff you do or whatnot. 
I want to challenge that. I think we are all way more religious than we give ourselves credit for. The most atheistic people I know have chunks of faith in their life they rarely like to admit to. They're controlled and guided by their pursuit for power or business practice or relationship status or sex or whatever it is. Now, it is a bit different. So the author of Galatians, Paul, who we've been studying for a while and learning from, he comes from a background of high religious discipline. He was bought in 110%. Like, this consumed his entire mind. Um, and in fact, actually, one of the other letters that he wrote uh, in Philippians, he literally tells us that he liked it. He felt good being hyper-religious. He had a purpose and a drive and a structure. We like structure. We like boundaries and rules that say, do this, don't do that. Go here, but don't do that. And then we try to create more rules, and Paul kind of liked it. It gave him a drive. It gave him a power and an authority to flaunt. So who, who here can relate to that a little bit? We actually all have that kind of deep down inside. We get a purpose within a community, and we find other like-minded people. Um, it's amazing. But here's the thing. Uh, it, it doesn't work that well. So we have that drive. I, I thought of when I used to go to a summer camp, we would play this game called President. And what's fun about the game is you kind of rank yourself based on how you're playing the cards. And whoever's playing it the best, whoever wins the round or whoever gets to be president, and they kind of control the round. And it kind of goes down all the way to scum. Or if you play a little bit more, uh, there's, there's other words for it that I won't say up here for it, the low position, right? And I was really good at the game. So I was president. I was the king. And we made in our cabins this rule where the president got to make up just some like societal rules. We kind of created a religion in a sense. We would do these things. We would walk this way and get here to this table now. You know, we're also very uh, chivalrous. So there was this girl's cabin with like a bunch of pretty girls around our age we liked. So we would always clean up their dishes. That was one of the rules I made. We liked it. We would always go to this place and be first up front for the worship. We would do these things. I also, you know, had to take on a little bit of kingly thought. So people had to make my bed and they had to bring me my stuff I wanted and go up to get my food. It's great until I wasn't winning. And then those rules applied to me on the other side. I didn't like it. We function constantly in what we think is right or wrong, whether it's because we're going to a temple or a church or we're going to the casino or a strip club, whatever it is. We have senses of places where we worship because there's things in our lives for every single person that we find value, that we think gives us purpose on this planet. And here's the other factor I think that is important that we often don't think about. There's this human sense that we feel like we deserve good. We act good enough, so we deserve good. We deserve some of the karma to come back and pay us back, right? We deserve comfort, like the universe owes us something. That is a position of faith and religion. I actually have some respect for um, vocal atheistic thinkers. Uh, one a brilliant communicator and very wise scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is an uh, outspoken naturalistic atheist, he actually says this because uh, people will often say, well, what do you think happens after you die? And I actually have some respect for it. He just owns it. He's like, yeah, so, you know, we're this mass of chemicals and, and proteins that ceases to exist. So the electricity in our brain stops, and eventually we decompose into the building blocks that produce the next phases of life in our planet's gene pool. And then he gets pressed on a little bit more, and so he goes on to start theorizing about what consciousness might look like in the greater scheme of biochemistry and electricity, which is a profound faith position, but I won't get started on that. We always talk about the stuff behind the veil like we think we have some understanding or knowing, and that's faith. 
and then to understand the faith and what we think and wrestle around it, that is religion. To kind of put it short at the end of the day, religion is just a man-made attempt to either put God into a box or into the world we expect or to make a world in which we expect God wants or whatever we're calling God or the piece of power in our life. To say it all here, we're all religious. And then this is where it gets dark and bad, the dark side of religion, because we start to wield it like a weapon. And then that, and that happens to followers of Jesus when we start to move away from the pure gospel of grace where Jesus came and changed everything, the water, the six, six stone vessels representing all the religion, he transformed it all and it's gone. Instead, we wield the stuff that we think we could put God into a box around and it becomes dangerous. And we get results of what we actually just uh, reflected on as a nation on Friday, Truth and Reconciliation Day, because followers of Jesus wielded faith like a weapon they wielded religion like a weapon and not actually the gospel of grace that Jesus brings. So what this story is all about is Jesus saying, it's over, it has changed. All of that old stuff and the temples and the sacrifices and the rituals is done and finished. And uh, one of the most um, influential schol biblical scholars right now, modern day N.T. Wright, says this quote, and it's, it can be offensive to Christians, to followers of Jesus too, because we often subtly have this sense of like, yeah, Jesus, everything, absolutely, but also kind of, you know, some of the other stuff too, in the right worship songs and the right things that we do in church. But Jesus, yeah, absolutely. So N.T. Wright says this, it's a way of saying that when you hold up these pieces of religion next to Jesus, that in the cross and the resurrection, God did not actually fulfill his whole saving purpose that Jesus did not, in fact, achieve the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and his resurrection was not the start of God's new age. That Acts is wrong and Romans is wrong and Galatians is wrong and that the Revelations is wrong and the letter to the Hebrews is wrong. You can claim these things still have validity, if you will, because they're, they're neat, these religious pieces and rituals and practices, but you can't call yourself a follower of Jesus. So let's talk about that, because that's, that's a challenge. That shakes us a little bit. We need to understand what's going on here. So uh, let's talk about the water that's turned into wine. One of the things I love, and again, John doesn't waste space. So uh, Jesus said, take the stone vessels, fill them to the brim with water. And I think this word is not wasted, because this is saying there is no more room in here. When, it, when the water gets turned into wine, it is all wine. There is no more, you can't add anything to it. You can't uh, change anything about it. Filled to the brim and there is no water left. And what's amazing about this, at this party, symbolically and literally, there is no water left for washing of your hands, for purifying. This was in a culture that still in the moment had a deep, strong need to wash and be clean and to cleanse from whatever, the doorknobs you touched and the COVID now that's on your hands. There was no sanitizer around. It was gone. And it was a lot of wine. Six stone vessels, about 30 gallons, 20 to 30 gallons each. Uh, I, I found one author uh, said there's about 900 bottles of wine. I've seen some amazing sellers, right? Uh, SNL Kitchen in Abbotsford, they've got this huge wall of whatever, and it's like 100 bottles of wine. It's pretty impressive. I've even been to some, like, uh, I've got a, a friend of mine who's uh, an Indian wedding. It was like five days long. I hopped in on day four, huge party, just constant people going in on all, and they, 
you know, they drank a lot. So there's like the, the bag of storage of empties and there was like, like a good hundred bottles of stuff, right? Uh, big bottles, right? Like the big guys, 900 bottles of wine. And I think what's amazing about this too, six 30 gallon stone vessels filled with wine is the author here, John, and Jesus's way as well of saying it's all changed and it's more than you could ever need. The gospel of grace, the love and the grace that Jesus brings is more grace than you could ever fathom. Sometimes you get in your head saying, yeah, okay, but my past is a mess. You have no idea the stuff I did in the ditches and the stuff I've injected into my body or the things that I have said to people. 900 bottles of wine, 900 bottles of grace is more than you could ever imagine needing. There's, you couldn't party for a year and consume that. You'd be dead if it was alcohol, yeah. So that's amazing. It's an ample amount of grace. And then the last piece, which I think is the epitome, the climactic point of what Jesus came to do here, is what the master says uh, at the end, where he says, Everyone, you know, uses the best wine first and waits till everyone's gotten nice and drunk and they don't know that you're serving them grape juice with a little bit of Purell in it. Uh, you save the best wine till the end. This is the best wine he's ever tasted. And that's Jesus' way of saying, water has a point, has a purpose, right? Like water is refreshing. It's good, you know, it's God's thing. But this is better. This is better, this is new. So uh, one author and pastor, Mark Clark, he says this, I love it. This story sets up the gospel of grace that brings Jesus into our lives. One that gives us life and hope and liberty to know God. One that brings about transforms li transformed lives in the way of money and relationship and family and power and love and wisdom by knowing God's design for all those things. This is about bringing flavor and the richness of wine into an otherwise bland and tasteless life of water. And so that's where we're gonna kind of wrap today is that this isn't just some neat Bible story that you now dive into a little bit and see, like, yeah, okay, yeah, there's some symbolism here and the theology is really, really cool. Okay, now I, I, I believe it. Jesus is great. This isn't just about something that happened. This is about transformation. Think about the servants. The master didn't know. He just got these things of, of wine, right? Where do they come from? It's funny, he didn't even ask. He just now had this amazing wine and these vessels the servants brought, right? Like, where do they get them from? And the servants knew that they filled it with water. You don't accidentally fill 900 bottles worth of really, really good expensive wine into these stone vessels. Um, they knew it was water. They know that it's wine now. There's a change and a transformation that happened. Jesus didn't just take this opportunity to create a new theology. Jesus wants to see change happen. He wants to see change happen in my life and in your lives and in all the people at that party's lives and the uh, Galatians, the believers in Galatia. He wants to see change happen. And this is a fear of mine because people have asked me sometimes and I'm sad that I have to be a little bit slow sometimes on the answer and it's a fear I have for some of you here too that when people ask, how has Jesus changed your life? And you would never say it out loud but maybe you actually think in your head, well, I had it pretty good before. Jesus just kind of helped me a bit. And it's so contradictory to everything that we read about in the Bible that says we're lost, that we are kind of utter disasters without Jesus in the way of fully understanding the world. We think we create good enough systems and rules and practices and we do this right thing and we have this manner, which is good. 
until we see that it always turns negative. We use it as abuse. We use it as a weapon wielding against other people. We're critical. We're bitter. We hold resentment against people. It turns into hatred. It turns into violence. Our own systems are never sufficient. That's why we need the gospel of grace, and we need something better, like the wine that this water got turned into. So here's the thing. If you're a skeptic or if you've got friends who are like skeptical, they think this is all just hocus pocus or whatever, we sometimes get into our heads the sense that we need to convince people that this stuff, that this Bible, that it's, it's true, that it's real, right? That this stuff happened. But I don't actually think that's it. I think the question people want to know is, does it work? Does this work? Does it actually change lives? And that's where you come in. That's where you come in as a follower of Jesus, as somebody who has experienced this, as if you truly believe this stuff and if you've brought Jesus into your lives. It's called testimony. It's called your life story. And it's called taking a real look at where God has been at impact in your life. How has God taken your understanding of marriage and impacted it and transformed it? How has God taken your understanding of money and God's design of money and generosity now changed your financial situation in life and not making you richer, making you think differently. How has God taken your understanding of power wielded over others and changed it? Do you tell people these things ever? Does this come right off the tip of your tongue? Or do you still feel like you've kind of had it pretty good, but Jesus kind of validated what you already thought you knew? It's a dangerous place if you've grown up in church your whole life too because you think you've just kind of heard it and it's just second nature and it's normal. But we actually have to experience it. And here's the thing, this transformation, this change in our lives comes by way of grace, not by way of legalism. And that was the problem with the old ways, with the old laws. Jesus' ministry was marked regularly by encounters with people caught in sin, caught in making a mess of their lives. And he brought to them love and grace, not rebuke but he did send them away with saying, go and sin no more. Go and figure it out and get better. But you do that through way of validation, of having security, of knowing that religion doesn't provide you any security. Religion, the systems you put in your life, you have to do better. You have to figure it out. You have to be good enough. And everyone else around you has to follow that or it falls to pieces. The gospel of grace from Jesus is saying, you're my son, you're my daughter. God adopts you into the family. And when you actually start believing that and feeling that truth of being God's son or daughter, literally the Bible saying that, he sees you like his son, Jesus. God sees you like Jesus. You start to believe that and you start to believe God's design for the world as well. And it impacts your life. I've seen so many amazing stories of somebody caught up in the foster system or who had to get taken out of a rough family home and they find parents who live this out, whether they know it or not, love and grace and uplifting. And the change it brings into their life is incredible. This uh, family from this youth group that I used to work with out in Surrey, there's, uh, there's one young man who uh, a couple years ago, he just finished, graduated out of Columbia Bible College, came out of a place of uh, fetal alcohol syndrome and uh, Down syndrome in the family as well, and a, a handful of other challenges and developmental disorders, and he was completely cast aside. You don't have a chance, 13 siblings, every single one of them with developmental challenges, and parents, not part of the picture, didn't care, didn't love them, and found, some, found a family that poured in love and support and grace. And now he's leading his family. He is 
running the show. He is his older and younger siblings. He is caring for them and bringing that same kind of change to their life. And it's like this point to stop. There's 13 siblings. He's like the seventh one down and every single one from there under transformed lives. What we talked about a couple weeks ago is God adopting us into his family. And how does this work? How does that transformation kind of happen? This happens, it was because of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus accomplished on the cross. A couple verses before this passage we just studied this morning in John, uh, Jesus says this line to his mom. His mom's like, hey, can you make wine? And Jesus says, "Uh, it's not my time yet. And he's referring to the cross when it's ultimately going to happen. So it's kind of Jesus' way of saying, like, it's coming. I'll give you a teaser now. This whole moment is just a teaser of what I'm going to do. On the cross, religion the religious zealousy and fervor that the culture had at the time. People who were followers of God, they were God's people. They thought they were doing it right, were the ones who killed Jesus, who arrested him and said, we don't want anything of what you're bringing to our lives and world. And they put him on the cross and Jesus still took it on and he died and he satisfied the wrath of God. He had the anger towards people who constantly turn away and rebel against him. See, because here's the thing. With a system like religion, when you think you're doing it fine and good enough, you need to be perfect. And let alone, far from being just kind of a little bit imperfect, we think sometimes, yeah, I got 98%. We're like, let's be honest, right? Like the best of us are like 60% on it. And the stuff in the back of our minds and at home and in the closet and whatever, and the stuff that we're going through, we're pretty far from perfection. And what we actually need is the security and the understanding of Jesus taking on that weight and that heat and saying, I get it, you need the help. I wanna provide the help and you're gonna see it and feel it through love and through grace, through another chance and another chance and another chance to come back into the family of God. And so this is what I wanna leave for all of you here today. So two things, one, if you have not experienced this, if you have not felt this, if this is new to you, so glad you got a chance to be here to hear it. This happens by literally simply trusting and believing that what Jesus said was true, that it matters, that it's important, that it can happen and have an impact. You surrender your life to saying, okay, Jesus, I think my way sucks. I think that I'm not doing it well enough. I'm not seeing the fruits of it, and I want to see something better. And you just open up and say, so Jesus, I need your grace to say I need something different than just another system or another set of rituals and religion that's going to get it better. And if you are here this morning and you're like, hey, I'm in that, I get it. You need to start telling people about it. You need to start showing people that, not, not thinking and learning more facts and data and stuff and whatever, the theology, it's cool, it's cool party tricks, right? It's awesome, it helps bolster it. But people wanna know if this works, if lives can actually be transformed. Tell people about the way your marriage is impacted because of God's design of marriage. There is a, so many uh, stats regularly that show that it does actually make a difference in faith communities. People who claim to be followers of Jesus, there are stronger marriages. There are uh, less chances of divorce. There is less chances of physical violence in the home. There is actually a a neat stat that came out of left field. Men are more likely to be involved in kids' volunteer-based extracurricular activities. People get involved in lives in a different way because we start to actually believe and see God change our lives and live the way his son lived, Jesus lived. If you ever find yourself thinking, what's, what's God's will or design for me? It's in the Bible. It's actually written out crystal clear. It says to become conformed to the likeness of his son, literally to start living more and more like Jesus. That's perfection. 
That's the goal. It's a high bar, but that's why we have a gospel of grace. That's why we have uh, done away with, that's why Jesus did away with six stone vessels filled to the brim with water and completely transformed into something better at the end of it. So pray with me here as we just end off here. God, you bring a message to us that shakes up everything, God. And, and you know what? I hope it challenges us and hurts a little bit. The stuff that we think that we figured out, God, you challenge it every single time. God, give us some conviction when we are putting in rules and practices in place and trying to put you into a box, God, and thinking that we can kind of work alongside you because that's not it, God. You're above us and we are just here with open arms, open hands saying we need your grace. We need your forgiveness and love. God, thank you for this story that is so powerful and impacting. God, thank you for the Apostle Paul's repetition in Galatians to the, ancient, uh, to the church in ancient Galatia and to us that we need to hear a message over and over and over again to hopefully start actually hitting the parts in our lives that we're still holding on to, where we're still turning back to our old practices and our old religions and rituals. And it's subtle, God. God, give us some humility that every time we think we've got it figured out perfectly down, that instead we just get turned back towards you. God, give us open minds and open hearts. And God, give us some confidence to just talk about and share about and and celebrate and worship about the ways that you have changed our lives, God, the way that we're living different than the rest of the world that sometimes we see floundering with identity issues and with struggling for purpose and design. But God, that we have that kind of confidence because we have security in your gospel of grace. God, thank you so much for all of this. I just pray that you bless us, bless this place, bless the day as we go off into here into the beautiful sunny weather, God. And we pray all these things in your name. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, everyone. Um, I do want to just also throw out, as Justin mentioned too, uh, myself and the leadership team, we hang around here for a while after the service. We'd love to chat, to get to know you better, to pray with you if you have that need. And, and, and even if you don't think it's a need, we would still love to pray with you. We're just around here available. And otherwise, this is just a, a house of relationship, of getting to know each other. And next week is Thanksgiving. So we're excited for that too. But thanks for joining us this week. Have a great week.